Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for everything you've done for humanity. That uh, when we walked away from you in the garden, that you put everything in motion to win us back. We thank you for that, and we know that that culmination, like the process began like on earth here with the coming of your Son. And so, Lord, uh, thank you, Jesus, for being willing to do everything you did on your mission here on earth, from being born as a human uh, to dying as a human, and being resurrected, uh, the Son of God. And we thank you for that. Um, we owe everything to you. And so we want to worship you in spirit and truth, and we want to love you. We want to honor you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so <clears throat> this week we're, we're, doing some, we're going to do some Advent, Advent stuff in the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm doing um, the, the Luke passage, but I'm not going to do some of the standard, you know, with the wise men and uh, things like that. I'm going to focus on some of the, the ancillary characters. So there's some, like, messages that went out with the birth of Jesus, and so I'm going to cover some of those messages that went out. <clears throat> so uh, as we get started, <clears throat> most of us, we've been in church for a while, and it's, it's tradition in a lot of churches that every year we're going to have something dedicated to Christmas messages. Um, Christmas services and Easter services, there's usually, like we put messages around those seasons that are related to that topic. We teach from relevant passages. We hold events related to the season. Sometimes we'll have like an Easter lunch, right, or a Christmas party. <clears throat> um, and be, But because it's been done so consistently for so long, it is easy to think that the whole season, whether it's Christmas or Easter, particularly Christmas here, becomes a cliche. Or it's something that... Um, it's so common that we lose like the holy element to it, the, the reverence for it. Um, and because we lose that reverence for it, sometimes it's tempting for us to start deviating from the traditions, to start deviating from those messages during those times to try something different, um, perhaps even in an effort to go against tradition. I mean, it happens. It's a very common thing. Uh, we see a lot of going against tradition or going against common things uh, in, our, in our culture today. <clears throat> and as we mentioned earlier, uh, we as a people, we have a tendency to forget the importance of things in the past. And because we tend to forget, we tend to lose that holy reverence for things. And what we see, if we look at our culture today, there's some common phrases that, that kind of betray that in, in uh, American culture. So if you ever see signs up everywhere that say, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Or we see um, this, this argument from happy holidays versus Merry Christmas. Right? Something's happening, right? Why do we say happy holidays? Why don't we say Merry Christmas? Or 
even I'll, I'll go as far as saying this one, and, and this, this might step on some toes, but I'll put it out there. The refusal to write Eximus because we should not abbreviate the name of Christ. Right? Because somehow that diminishes the name of Christ in Christmas. Well, honest, when I was in seminary and I was writing tons of notes for my professors, anytime I used the word Christian, I put X-I-A-N because it's shorthand. And if you want to get like nerdy about it, X is the Greek letter for the name of Jesus. It's Kairos, right? Christos, right? So anyway, that's a whole other thing. But why are those things there, right? Why do we have the need to say Jesus is the reason for the season? Why do we have the need to have this, they're putting up happy holidays and not Merry Christmas, so I'm not going to send my business over there. Right? Why is that going on? It's going on because those very things betray something in our culture. The fact that we as Christians feel compelled to assert that, right? To assert these phrases or, or to spell out, it reflects the waning or the moving out of favor of Christianity in our culture. And it's been doing that for some time. I mean, this isn't something new. This isn't something that we've, oh my goodness, we're losing our influence on the culture. We've been losing it for decades. It's just a fact of the matter. We're just trying to reclaim some of it with some of these phrases, trying to, to get back to the basics. Because <clears throat> our national culture is forgetting its Christian background, its Christian heritage. And they're doing it in favor of what we call pluralism. And I would say that the church at large, not, not specifically our church, but the church at large is often influenced by the culture as well. And so you might see happy holidays on a church somewhere. And you might see <clears throat> um, the coexist bumper stickers in a church's parking lot. You guys know what I mean, right? The coexist pumping Yeah. So, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so we're going to look at... Um, that's basically my argument for why we're doing a Christmas message during the Christmas season. That's my introduction. So we're doing a Christmas message during the Christmas season. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> Um, in Jeremiah 4, God tells Jeremiah, and we, I mentioned this earlier, he says, have a man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel take a stone out of the Jordan River that was parted and would set him up on the other side as a memorial for what happened here. So that generations down the road, your children will come up and be, what are these stones for? And you'll remember, this is where God delivered us across the Jordan River on dry land as a miracle of God's provision. <clears throat> and the words that are, these stones shall be to the people of Israel as a memorial forever. We talked about Abraham setting up the altars, memorials to God, right? Altars to God, basically claiming his territory. But memorial, so every time he goes to that altar, there's a memorial, God was honored here. A sacrifice was, happened here for God. And then during communion, right, the Lord told his disciples in the Last Supper, Luke 22, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He sets up a memorial. Likewise, 
the cup after they had eaten. He took it and he said, This cup that was poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Because we, even as Christians, are prone to forget. We're prone to forget that it's the Lord, Yahweh, who commanded the pile of stones to be set. It's Jesus, the Savior, that commanded us to observe the Lord's Supper as a remembrance. <clears throat> now we, you know, being what we would call a Protestant church, we basically have what? Two, what they would traditionally call sacraments. We have baptism and we have communion. We're not Catholic, so we don't have the last rites. And we don't have a confessional booth or any of the other things. Marriage is considered a, a sacrament. We, we don't technically have all of those built in, but they're still important because they're observations that the Lord has commanded throughout history. <clears throat> so, as we look at this, in an effort to, to reclaim the God aspect, right, to remember the God aspect of the Christmas season, I'm not going to use the cliches, I'm not going to use the catchphrases, we're going to look at the scriptures, particularly in Luke, and look at some of the words that were declared. Everybody on TV, I just fell over. <laughs> yeah, right. <clears throat> so we're going, to look at, we're going to look at Luke. Some of the words that were spoken around the birth of Jesus to, to pull out like a sense of gravity of what's going on. Because we do this so much every year, it feels like it's a common thing. And let's take it back into the holy category. So we're going to look at some of the words declared around Jesus' birth to talk about like how profound this really is, how earth-changing this really is. So the first one we're going to look at is Luke 1, 11 through 17. And this is Gabriel's visit to Zechariah. <clears throat> so, do you guys remember Zechariah, right? Um, he's the priest who is aging, and his wife is aging, Elizabeth, and they, they're the parents of John the Baptist. That's our, that's our immediate context. What we don't tend to think too much about this is that John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. Might be second or third cousin, but they're, they're related. Uh, so there's a, there's a connection there. And so, starting in verse 11. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So, anytime they go in, right, there's, it's an event to go in to the temple and burn incense. People outside are praying. He's the one that's chosen to go in. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. This happens a lot when an angel shows up. There's like a fear element. And part of that is because like you're in the presence of a holy divine being. There is a, you're being outclassed in some sense, right? Like you're way above your weight, 
your weight class whenever an angel shows up. Uh, because, okay, in Greek, uh, angelos just means messenger. I mean, then he's, he's performing a messenger thing. It's a job description. But a supernatural being is a supernatural being. Like, this is a big deal. This is, it's almost like for a human who doesn't know Yahweh, this would feel like a God showing up to them. That's, that's the, the, the gravitas of what's happening. Basically, from a human perspective, a deity, a God, is showing up and talking. That's kind of a fearful thing. Now, Zechariah knows, you know, it's, it's not Yahweh, right? So he, he understands a little bit. He's, he's Jewish. He's got some training. But definitely out of his weight class with his visitation. So there's, there's, there's a fear element when something like that happens. Like, for me, like, I've done, I've done my fair bit of, of spiritual warfare. Like, I'm not going to go into any stories. But there are some things that will grip you with fear that do not love God. Just saying. It happens. Just saying. It happens. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. But that first reaction, oh, man, there's some crazy stuff. That's all I'm going to say. So the angel appears to him, stands at the right side of the altar, uh, right side of the altar. Zechariah is gripped with fear, and the angel says, "Do not be afraid." Now I can imagine it's still taking a little bit of time for his like heart rate to come down a little bit. He says, "Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and." Many will rejoice because of his birth, because he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, that's a really awesome word. <laughs> like, if I got a word like that for our soon-to-be baby, that, that would be pretty awesome. It would be even more awesome if I got that word before the baby was even conceived. Now, John's taking this, right? And he is amazed by it. He's also a little confused. He's like, we're pretty old, whoever you are. You know, we're, we're pretty old. Like, how, how can this be? And then because, like, he, he questioned it. You know, like, he, 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 he's forced to be mute until the baby's born. That's a whole other thing. But, like, all this is surrounding the birth of Jesus, right? Um, in the Jewish mind, like, the atmosphere is clear. People are looking for the Messiah to come. They've done the math. Right? They've done the numerology. Some of it legit, maybe some of it not as legit. But as a culture, they were expecting the Messiah any time. And John wasn't asking for a Messiah. He wasn't even asking any connection for a Messiah. He's just asking for, let us have a child. Let us have a child. Because that was, that was a sign of blessing from the Lord. And if you were barren in Israel in this time... It's a sign that you do not have favor with the Lord. That's, that's the belief system. They're, this is what they legit believe. Like, if I don't have kids, I'm not blessed of the Lord. I'm forced to be barren. 
my family name is going to die out. The Lord is displeased with us. That's that's the thought process. I mean, like, that's kind of the thought process in our world as well. Like, even in the church today, um, families that, that, that are barren, like, like, they face disappointment after disappointment after disappointment for not getting pregnant. And there's, there's this psychological thing that happens that you think, have I displeased the Lord? Like, this is what we're created to do. And that happens. And so Zechariah is going through this, and he gets this message, you're going to have, you're going to have a child. Like, we've been, say they're in their, their 40s, right? Like, we've been trying this for 20 years, and no child has come. How can this be, you know, Maybe I would be cynical too, even if an angel showed up to me. So the angel's like, all right, well, you're not going to talk anymore until the baby's born, but it's going to happen, right? The announcement of the coming of John, if, if Zechariah knew the verbiage, he, he might pick up what's happening here. But there's no clear, clear indication that Messiah is coming here. He just knows he's going to have a son. It's going to be delightful and joyful. Um, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the, bowl, in the womb. He's not going to take fermented drink. And he's going to start turning the hearts of Israel back towards righteousness, restoring relationships. That's the brunt of the word, making ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's pretty awesome, right? If I got a word saying that, like, your son will be somebody who restores relationships. That would be a pretty awesome word to have. So this announcement of, of John comes, and John's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. It's a great word. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. But that whole preparing people from the Lord, it seems like a passing phrase, right? Like we, we've got, a, we've got a, a climate in Israel where You've got Sadducees who are basically ruling uh, the religious ruling class. They're like the millionaires, and the billionaires of the day. They don't have an interest in the, in the spiritual world, the supernatural world. They don't believe in a resurrection. Then you've got the Pharisees who do believe in the spiritual supernatural world. There's a great fight between them with Paul later on, if you remember. But they're, they're all about like reforming Israel from within so that they can be prepared for the blessings of the Lord, so they can become the true Israel again. And then you had had this falling out between these Pharisees and another group who split off and thought, we, we can't reform from within, it's too far gone, we need to separate ourselves out and, and live a pure life out in the wilderness, and we call those the Essenes, if you guys have done any of your like Israel history stuff. And Based on the characteristics of John, a lot of people think that he split off and became an Essene because of the strict lifestyle and eating locusts and honey and camel hair. He may have been, he may not have been. I can't say for sure. There's a chance. He might just have been uh, a guy that separated out to get away from the culture. That happened too. So all of this is going on. And this whole prepare people for the Lord becomes John's like thrust, like his main mission in life. Like they call him a prophet. You know, Jesus says that he's the Elijah to come, as as Gabriel here announced. He's very peculiar, right? He and Jesus, the way they live their lives are kind of opposites, and that's why 
like Jesus is able to go against the Pharisees on. It's like you say John is not serving God because he's so quirky and he's too strict, but you call me a glutton because I'll go sit down and, and have dinner with a sinner. Like, you can't please them. It's like you guys can't be pleased. You got the strictest person. You got somebody that's like, hey, you know, we're living life. And you just can't be happy. Something's not right in your heart there. So John is born. This message is coming, and it's kind of buried at the end of this message that he's going to prepare the way. We don't know any of this is going to be related to Jesus until after the fact. Like, most of this stuff happens. Nobody has a clue what's going on until after the fact. John's born. This major word happens that the person that's going to prepare the way of the Lord, that fulfillment in Isaiah is happening when Gabriel shows up to Zechariah and says, you're going to have a son, and this is going to happen. So that's the first thing we see in Luke, where this major thing's happening. And then Gabriel, Gabriel's got a lot of work going on um, during this Christmas thing here, gets sent to Mary six months later. And this is Luke 1, 26 to 28. Gabriel visits Mary. And he even says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, the angel Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. All right. This angel just showed up to Zechariah in the temple, right? Human perspective. This godlike figure shows up. Like, yeah, it's disturbing, right? It gets your attention, to say the least. Same thing happens to Mary. She's what? Roughly 14 years old, probably, maybe 15. Like that's that's a marable age uh, back in the day. 15 year old, right? That's like like Pamela. Right? God shows up to Pamela. Like, well, how do, how do you react to this, right? So it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words. Like, this God figure shows up and says, the Lord is favoring you. Okay, why? What? What's going on here? You know, I'm just living in this little podunk town. Not that I've done anything special. She's troubled. Wonder what kind of greeting this might mean. And then the angel says, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Okay. She probably knows the verbiage. She's in the culture. She knows the atmosphere. The Messiah could come at any time. The term Son of God, the term Son of Man, they're all messianic phrases that are known in scriptures. Um, the whole prophecy of the virgin birth, you know, is happening, right? And this angel shows up and says, oh yeah, you're the one that all of this is going to be fulfilled with. 14, 15 year old girl in a small backwoods town that nobody pays attention to. Angel shows up. Would that not be confusing? Like, I know sometimes I get big words and I'm like, I don't really hear that right. Like that's that's pretty big. You're like, how how does that come about? And then also like you're going to conceive and give birth. Like, 
well, well nobody conceives without having sex for one like what you know she has like how's this going to happen and you know the, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you and you'll, you'll conceive because she's like here I'm going to be I'm still a virgin <clears throat> the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God and then oh yeah by the way even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. Which, like, I don't know, like, was he trying to get them to talk to each other? Like, this is like, oh yeah, down the road, you know, Elizabeth. And then the angel says, no word from God will ever fail. So Mary's reply is like, I'm the Lord's servant. And if it's of the Lord, let your word be to me fulfilled. And the angel left. That's, that's some heavy stuff for her to, to keep in mind. So we see that uh, she's highly favored for whatever reason. She, she probably has no, no reason to think that she would, but somehow she found favor with God. She's going to conceive and give birth and is to name him Jesus, um, which you know in the Aramaic would be Yeshua or Yeshu, which I've come across a couple of people who have found some some off-the-wall rabbi who's claiming that the name of Jesus is connected with the Greek god Zeus. I don't know if you guys have heard this or not, that it's more connected with a derivative of Zeus, and so therefore they're trying to like discount the name of Jesus. Here's a problem with that. Anybody who makes that claim has no idea about transliteration whatsoever. I don't know if you guys are familiar with transliteration. In English, we name a child Matthew. You go in South America, the, the name's Matthias. Here, if you name a child Mike, uh, Michael, if you go over into Russia, it's um, Mikhail. It's the same name. It's transliterated. It's the same thing here. Jesus, in English, is just a simple transliteration of Yeshu in Aramaic and Yeshua in Hebrew. That's it. Iesus is the Greek transliteration. Yeshua, Iesus. Why does it have an S at the end of it? Because in Greek, you've got to have an ending. Masculine or feminine, or neuter. It's a gendered language. So you stick a us on the end of it. That's it. That's it. And you get into Latin, instead of OS, it's US. Iesus. And you get to English, you've got a J in there. Jesus. Ah, ah, Okay. There's no connection to Zeus whatsoever. And if you come across that and that was a question in your mind, there you go. If you've never heard of it, it's extra. She'll give, conceive and give birth to a son. Name him uh, Jesus. God will give him the throne of the father David, of his father David. So if we looked at the Old Testament, we see that God said that Abraham's descendants will be his portion. I think this is Deuteronomy 4. 32, something like that. Um, that. That Israel is God's portion. And so God is giving Jesus the throne of David, which is the Lord's portion. He will reign over Jacob's descendants. So God is appointing a new king from heaven to be king over the Jews. Then he makes that statement, no word from God will ever fail. So the word of the Lord went to Zechariah, and the word of the Lord went to Mary. These things are coming to pass. <clears throat> Our third visit, 
Now, I'm not exhausting. I'm just doing, doing a small handful. Luke 2, 8 through 12. Angels visit the shepherds on the night of the birth. Then there are shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified, but the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. Here you go again. You got some lowly shepherds, one of the most despised classes of the day, living out in the field with their sheep. Angels show up, right? These God figures show up. This is a scary thing. Like, what? So, shows up and says, don't be afraid. That's always, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. So that's the announcement. <laughs> right? Like this is, this is the cosmic announcement to a handful of shepherds out in the middle of nowhere. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. So this is kind of an odd scenario because usually when a king's born, there's a major announcement that just goes out in all the land. And here they just kind of show up to a few shepherds off to the side. Now some people might make this big connection with Psalm 23 about the Lord being my shepherd and he favors shepherds. I don't, I don't see that connection. This is what I see happening. This goes back to Genesis 3. And some, uh, some ideas of uh, the nature of angels and demons and things like that. So in Genesis 3, we call it the fall, because Adam and Eve disobeyed. More than that, there's heavenly beings that have disobeyed. So there's actually another fall that's going on. There's the fall of the heavenly beings that disobeyed, and there's the fall of the humans that disobeyed. The fall of the heavenly beings... You know, God made a declaration at the end of Genesis 3 that there would be enmity, animosity, right? A war between the offspring of men and women and the offspring of angelic beings, right? The serpent. You get into it a little bit later, the serpent represents a a very powerful angelic being in the ancient Near Eastern world. That's that's where I'm going to go there. So there is an animosity from the rebellious angelic beings that's happening with humanity. And when God starts planning out his portion to be Abraham and the nations of Israel, nation of Israel, these angelic beings are always working in the background to try to overtake Israel. Right? You look at Haman under Xerxes, trying to wipe out all of the Israelite people. God raises up Esther to intervene for that. Like, you see this happening. I mean, you even see, like, like even modern day, look at World War II and the Holocaust. Always a, an attempt to take out God's portion. There's a cosmic war that's happening as well as a physical war that's happening. And so, in order for God to get this messianic thing to happen, I think, my opinion, you could disagree with me, is that he's kind of chosen to do it in a covert operation kind of way. So that what happens is that he scatters the prophecies about the Messiah all throughout the Old Testament. 
so that you can't ever put it together until after the fact. So we as humans can't put it together until after the fact, and his spiritual opponents can't put it together until after the fact. They don't know the nature of the Messiah that's coming. They don't know the plan. He's kept it secret from them. And, and so they're trying to, anything he does, they're trying to undermine. But he's always got this undercurrent that kind of keeps them from doing it. And so when this announcement happens, where do you think, where do you think the, the, the big fallen angels are putting their attention? In the throne rooms, in the center of the Roman Empire, right? In Herod's palace. They're not paying any attention to some lowly shepherds out in the field. So where does the announcement come? To the place that they would least expect it, to a bunch of lowly shepherds out in the field. But the announcement heralds, it comes, and they declare good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Now in Greek, the word for good news is euangelion, the EU, euangelion, if you want to anglicize it, but euangelion. Go through the Latin, go through the French, go through the English, you put a V in there, evangelion. And then it changes to evangelistic. So when, when an evangelist goes out, it's not about converting people. The evangelist is spreading the good news. That's what evangelism means. The good news. And that's the declaration that the angels have. Evangelion. Good news. In the town of David, a Savior is born. The announcement of the Messiah has come. And they said, here's the sign. It's not going to be from the trumpets. It's not going to be from the red carpets rolled out in the palace. The sign is you're going to go there and you're going to find a baby wrapped in the traditional term, swaddling clothes. I didn't have a clue what that was until Elora was born. You know, like, okay, so the baby's just like kind of wrapped up in a blanket. And then, then the nurses told me how to swaddle. Right? They taught me how to do the swaddling. And I got pretty good at it. You know, three kids later, like, I can swaddle a newborn with the best of them. Even figure out, like, when you do it, and you take, like, the little corner and you tuck it in, you know, so it's, like, nice and it's like, like a packaged potato, kind of, you know. And, and they tell me they sleep better that way. I'm like, okay. And so I know when, when, when Xander's born, you're like, I've got three times experience here. I can swaddle that baby. And, you know, and the nurses would even say, like, you know, the dads are really good at swaddling because they can get that thing good and tight and tuck that thing in there. And, and I do my best. Eventually, that thing comes unwrapped, and so we, we broke down and did it the easy way. Also, you know, for, for Shannon's sake, we bought the ones with the Velcro. So you wrap them up and you just Velcro it, and then it, it stays, right? It's good, you know, thank God for technology. <laughs> so you're going to find this baby wrapped up, right? Swaddled. But not in a bed, not in a crib, in a manger. So like a little feeding trough for like cows and donkeys. That's the sign that the Messiah has been born. All right. So the supernatural angelic beings that are going against God are, are playing for their warfare in, in the palaces of Rome and in Herod's castle. And then God brings the Messiah to a lowly creche, to use the French word, la creche, to a little manger wrapped in clothes in a feeding trough. But because that happened, at that point, the angelic 
beings didn't know, right? Because they weren't paying attention. And the kings weren't paying attention. Which means that the kings were only, the, Herod was only able to find out because of the astronomers, right? The magi, way off in Babylon, that's where we think they came from, who showed up saying, hey, a king was born. What? 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 A king? So it gets Herod's attention, and it gets the angel's attention, right? like the demonic attention, right? What? The Messiah's born. So now they're working in tandem to try to take out the Messiah, right? Herod, like, well, go find the child so I can come and worship him, right? There's this whole crafty thing going on. There's a whole spiritual war going on in the midst of all of this as well. Um, <clears throat> I was going to go on to a little side note, but I'll, I'll stop there because I, I can really geek out on this stuff. So what happens? Like, okay, Herod's like, all right, you, you, you go find out where that is, and I'll go. So the okay, we'll do that. And then so they go, and then the angel says, no, no, don't tell him. So they, they probably rush off through Capernaum to get back to, to Babylon through by, by boat or something. Um, and then Herod finds out he's been duped. Oh, is he mad? So in the midst of all that, what happens? The angel shows up to Joseph and says, get to Egypt now. Like, pack up your stuff. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. Grab what you can, get that donkey, and you get out of here. All right, all right, we're going, right? You know, if a godlike figure shows up in your bedroom and says, you get out of the house, you get out of the house. <laughs> you don't ask questions. So he went. I think he showed up in a dream, but, you know, that's, that's the details. So what does Herod do? Slaughters all of the male children, two years and under, in Bethlehem. Like, complete eradication. We are killing this king. We are stopping this mission, right? Demonic forces, right? Coming at the scene, trying to wipe out the chance for God's Messiah to be born. They're like, we missed it. We missed all of these things being splattered all over the Old Testament. We missed the details. So now, corrective measure, massive fallout. Just slaughter. <clears throat> And Jesus gets away. Right? He gets away to Egypt. So that's, that's the angels show up to the, to the shepherds. And then the last one we're going to look at. And then, then we'll wrap up. And then we'll have a nice little brief sermon. Luke chapter 2, verses 28 to 35. Simeon. We tend to forget about uh, poor Simeon. He's just this old guy hanging around in the temple during, uh, during the circumcision ceremony. And when it shows up, it says, Simeon uh, took Jesus in his arms, praised God. If you don't remember the story of Simeon, at some point in his life, he received a prophecy or a word from the Lord, something, that he would not see death until he saw God's Messiah. Right? Now, I know a lot of people today believe they've gotten a word from the Lord that they won't see death until Jesus comes back. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I don't know. I can't say. I'm not an authority on that. All I can say is, let's wait and see. So he was waiting and seeing. He's, he's already an old man. And he sees somehow he recognizes this is the Messiah. And so he makes this declaration as he's holding Jesus in his arms. He prays, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. So he's saying, all right, I have seen the Lord's promise. I can now die in peace. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, the light, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now we most sort of think that the, the, the sword piercing her soul probably means her experiencing his crucifixion, you know, the, death, you know, the execution of her son which makes sense. There might be something deeper. I don't know. Um, I haven't really plunged the depths on that. But we're going to break down his words. Like he, he basically gives a prophecy of, you know, to Mary and Joseph. He says, His eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. He's seen the promise, right? He's in the temple, so he's, he's given... He, there's a good chance that he knows some of the scriptures. That he, he sits under the teachings he knows the Lord's Messiah is coming. And now he's saying, the Lord's fulfilled his promise. I've seen the Lord's salvation. <clears throat> and he makes this uh, the statement that God has prepared the salvation in sight of all the nations. <clears throat> now if we go back to the supernatural beings who have rebelled against God and have taken over uh, the other nations, God is started the process of not just establishing his king in Israel, but also starting the overthrow of their reigns in the other nations. So he's taken, taken out the holy ones, right, the, the shining ones, the, the fallen angels who are overseeing, like, uh, like the prince of Persia, right, that Michael had to contend with for three weeks. That kind of thing is starting to be overturned with the birth of Jesus. God's reclaiming territories from the derelict um, heavenlies. So as Simeon says, the glory of Israel, the king of Israel, and the revelation to the Gentiles, that God is going to bring the salvation, not just to Israel, but on a global scale. He says it's going to be destined to cause, this child will be destined to cause the rise and fall of many in Israel. Just a few to name. Pilate. Remember Pilate? He didn't last very much longer after crucifying Jesus. He fell pretty quickly after that. The chief priests, as they declared, may the, something like, may the, may the blame of executing this man be on us and on our children and our children. Right? Well, good job, chief priests. He didn't last very long. What about the temple? Jesus dies roughly, what, 33 AD? Give or take. What happens less than 40 years later? That temple is gone. Leveled. Well, except for the Wailing Wall. That's about the only thing that's left. Yep, Romans did a pretty good number on that one. How about Judas? He was a fall, right? He, uh, he fell. So those are the falls, right? Ah, it's not all negative. What about the rising? Well, the most esteemed um, Christian in the first century, right after Jesus, is Peter. So he had a pretty good rise. He came to prominence. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. We're all pretty much believers because God tapped Paul to hit the Gentiles. 
James, the brother of Jesus, what they call him, you know, he, he was martyred, but man, the, the tradition says that he, he prayed in the temple every day so hard that like his his knees were calloused. Like like you could just couldn't even hurt his knees, period. Um yeah, so things changed. I mean, like if you want to talk about like what does that mean, the rise and fall of many, it's not just the particulars. Things changed on a global scale because of Jesus. The fact that we, 2,000 years later, across an ocean, halfway through a continent, are celebrating Christmas is a testament that things change with Jesus' coming. <clears throat> and his final part of the prophecy, um, minus Mary's specific, is that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And we can see some of Jesus' ministry where he knows their hearts, right? Or he knows what's in their minds. The thing that I went to when I heard that was Hebrews 4.12. It says that the word of the Lord is sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Cutting through bone and joint and marrow and revealing like even, even the soul and then the mind. You know, so the word of the Lord. And and we, we euphemistically call the Bible the word of the Lord. In reality, the word of the Lord is Jesus. Like he's the word. That's what John declares. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That whole thing. I'm not saying it's wrong to call the Bible the word of God. It's the words of Jesus, right? It's inspired. We're talking about slicing open the hearts of men. It's Jesus. Right? It's that Holy Spirit that comes and whoosh, convicts the heart of sin. So all of this, these, these are the words, these are the declarations that have happened around Jesus' birth. So when we come into Christmas, let's not just think of a little baby in a manger. Let's remember the declaration of this godlike angel that shows up to Zechariah that says, your son will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, and that that means all of the heavenly hosts who have rebelled against God are defeated. And that means that everybody that's fallen in sin will have an opportunity to receive salvation and be brought to eternity with God who loves them. Like this angel is saying, John, will prepare that. He has a big task ahead of him. He will fulfill it and will be great in the sight of the Lord. Right? He gives the word to Mary. You're going to give birth to the Messiah. The one that everybody's been prophesying about for hundreds of years. The one that everybody's looking for. The one that everybody is looking at the stars about. The one that everybody has been talking about and trying to characterize and trying to profile by putting this piece of scripture with this piece of scripture. Your son is going to be it. Like the angel declares that. This is the Christmas season of those declarations. It's the Christmas season of Jesus' birth when he goes to get circumcised that Simeon says that it'll be a revelation to the Gentiles and it'll be glory to Israel and that your son will be the cause of the rise and fall of many. This earth will be shaken by your son. And that whole global thing, that whole heavenly thing, all that's coming to pass because of the Lord's declaration, because of the Lord's work. And at the same time, 
every one of us gets a chance at individual salvation because of the work of Jesus. Yes, he's the king of the universe. He's the king of anything in existence. And at the same time, he loves each and every one of us as individuals to such an extent that he offers us the gift of salvation for us to align with him, to be part of his family. Not just part of his kingdom, not just part of his army. You know, I'm in the Lord's army, right? To be part of his family. Paul says we've been adopted as children into the family of God. So is Christmas a lot more holy than gathering together with pretty decorations? Absolutely. Like the reason for the season. I told you I wasn't going to do that, but the reason for the season is because Jesus changed everything. And he's still changing things. And even though it's not over yet, and that we are seeing a ramp up in our day and in our culture of things that go against the ways of God. Oh, sorry about that. If you read the end of the book, there's victory. Victory. Just like the song, victory in Jesus. We win. So, dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that you sending your son to be born of a virgin was more than a sweet story, Father. It was a cosmic shift. That you have set a plan in motion that nothing can stop. No angel, nor demon, no principality, no power, no king, no peasant. Nothing in existence can stop your plan. And thank you, Lord, that you have invited us to be a part of that, to be a part of your family. Thank you that you have called us to be the family of God. And thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling your mission. And as Paul said, for learning obedience even to the point of death on a cross. Because you saw the greater good. Because you saw the redemption of mankind and you saw the redemption of your world. Thank you for that. Let us worship you this Christmas season knowing the weight and the gravity of your mission and how we have utterly benefited from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello again, this is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you are blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of The Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to The Gathering Place podcast. God bless you and have a great week.